I'm at the base of Mount Gilboa, which isn't as much of a mountain as it is a ridge. It's here at this spot that a spring still flows as it has for millennia. It's at this spot that Gideon gathered his 300 men to prepare themselves for battle against the Midianite army. On Mount Gilboa, God promised Gideon a great victory. But as Gideon stood up and looked out over the valley and saw the number of the enemy, what he thought God had asked of him was impossible. Though the odds were 450 to 1, Gideon would soon find out that with God, nothing is impossible. Stretching out like a fence marking along what used to be the northernmost boundary of the tribe of Manasseh, Mount Gilboa was a remarkably strategic mountain range where a myriad of biblical events and battles occurred. The Mount Gilboa range rises along the southeastern side of the Jezreel Valley, offering a tactical high ground for the nation's defense. A smaller valley running eastward between Mount Gilboa and the Hill of Moray bears the name Harod Valley, which expands more than 10 kilometers east toward Bet Shen, meeting the Jordan Valley. Atop Mount Gilboa, looking northeast, the Jezreel Valley spreads out like a blanket, extending across the expanse to the Hill of Moray, where the Philistines assembled to fight Saul. While this site may have been the place of much bloodshed, this same area would serve as the backdrop of two incredible miracles. The prophet Elisha raised the dead son of a woman from Shunem, while Jesus, over 800 years later, would demonstrate his divinity in a small nearby village called Nain, where he raised a widow's son from the dead. Adjacent to Moray, on the far eastern end of the Jezreel Valley, 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, Mount Tabor stands like a dormant volcano, rising 1,886 feet. It was here where Barak, under the leadership of the Israelite judge Deborah, battled the army of Jabin, commanded by Sisera, in the mid-12th century BC. According to tradition, it was here at Mount Tabor that our Lord may have been transfigured as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. From here on Mount Goboa on a clear day, you might even see Mount Hermon to the north. To the south of Ein Harod, tell Bet Shan, the site where Saul and Jonathan were hung on the walls of the Philistine fortress. Mount Goboa is actually a part of the old tribal territory of Manasseh. It's at the northeastern side of that territory, and it's a part of a mountain range that juts out into the Jezreel Valley. Mount Geboa actually means bubbling water or boiling springs. And at the base of Mount Geboa, there are a number of springs, one of which is the Spring of Herod, where Gideon and his men were numbered down by God to 300. 
And so this spring and this area of the base of Mount Geboa forms the backdrop for an important story between the Midianites and the children of Israel led by Gideon. The situation was this with Gideon. Because the Israelites had persistently done evil things in God's sight, the Lord allowed them to be oppressed by the Midianites, a nation of desert people. Every year they watched what they had worked for be stolen. So on one fateful occasion, the angel of the Lord appeared to an Israelite youth named Gideon and announced that the people were going to be delivered from the Midianites by his hand. The host of the Midianites, along with Amalekite people and others from the east, it was enormous. They were situated in the Jezreel Valley at the base of the hill of Moreh. Now when the Israelite troops came together with Gideon, they were about 32,000 in number. That was too large. So the Lord said that those who were afraid could return to their homes. That left about 10,000 soldiers. Still too large. So God whittled the number down to just 300 warriors. It was with these few that the Lord vanquished these invaders. The book of Judges describes the geography of Gideon's position with amazing clarity. Then, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. All of these geographical landmarks are still visible and from this vantage I can imagine the look on Gideon's face when he looked down into the valley and saw what the judge's writer described as men thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So in contemplating the story of Gideon, we often think about the sign given by God using the fleece and the dew as told in Judges 6. Yes, it was an impressive sign. Or we travel back to the battle won using only 300 Israelite warriors under the Lord's leadership. An extraordinary display of divine planning and power. But I believe the real battle took place in Gideon's village, inside his heart, his mind. He stood against the mistaken religion of his family and his community. He championed Yahweh, and he helped to turn the Israelites' hearts back to the Lord. It's in that sense that he really was a deliverer of Israel. It was only a short few years after Gideon defeated the Midianites that another man and his army would stand here upon this same ridge with his sons ready to mount battle against the Philistines. Shamefully, this man, King Saul, wouldn't possess the heart and the faith of Gideon, and as a result, lost his life on Mount Geboa. A nation would lose their king, and David would lose his dearest friend, Jonathan, who died alongside his father fighting the Philistines. Upon discovering what happened, David would curse Mount Geboa, saying, O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings. It's interesting to read about all of the military maneuvers that led up to King Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were first encamped at Shunem. The children of Israel were encamped on Mount Gilboa. 
And so some battle must have took place where perhaps the Philistines then were driven back out of the valley all the way to Aphek because as you continue on through 1 Samuel, you'll find that the Philistines then regrouped there and that the children of Israel then were encamped at the base of Mount Geboa there at the spring of Jezreel. The children of Israel are pushed back up on Mount Geboa where Saul evidently is able to look down on that battle and see his sons killed, and then he himself later on takes his life there as he sees the Philistines coming up. Only a few miles away on the northern side of the Hill of Moray, the city of Endor had a resident medium that Saul would visit in a frantic attempt for supernatural divination. Surprising even the medium, God revealed through the prophet Samuel that Saul would die the very next day. Many Israelite soldiers fall dead on Mount Geboa. Whatever defense shield they were to provide for Saul collapses, and the Philistines begin to press their attack against Saul and his sons. Saul looks on in terror, while his sons attempt to provide a last line of defense for their father. But one by one, Saul's sons are killed. Philistine archers spot Saul and begin firing arrows at the king of Israel. None of Saul's wounds are instantly fatal, though Saul is no longer able to attack, much less defend himself. It is only a matter of time, and Saul knows it. The Philistines were one of about nine tribes that made up the group that we call the Sea Peoples. They were originally from the area of the Aegean Sea. The Philistines settle along the coastline to the west of Israel, and there is a long history of conflict between the two peoples going back all the way to the time of the judges. Now at the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines have penetrated deep into Israelite territory. Saul attempts to stop their advance, but he is not going to be successful. The defeat is so complete that there won't be anyone left to remove the bodies of the royal family from the battlefield. As the army of Israel fell to the army of the Philistines on Mount Goboa, King Saul and his son's bodies were taken that same day together, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean, until faithful allies from Jebesh Gilead reclaimed them. Bethshean was a very ancient city. It was occupied by the Philistines sometime around 1100 BC. Its defenses were impressive. The slopes of the tell, or the mound on which the city was located, were very steep. In 1 Samuel 31, the Philistines defeat the Israelites, and they take the bodies of Saul and his sons as war trophies. The bodies are stripped and beheaded, and then they are sent to Beit Shan, where they are put on display on the city wall. The men of Jabesh Gilead will not stand for this. Saul had once rescued them from humiliation at the hands of the Ammonites, and now they're going to return the favor. They go to Beit Shan under the cover of night to retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons for burial. And this is a dangerous mission. The trip is about 15 miles, part of it going through Philistine territory. They do this at the risk of their own lives, and later on, King David himself commends their heroism. Scripture tells us that these valiant men marched through the night and took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshean and went to Jabesh, where they burned the bodies, bearing their bones under tamarisk tree at Jabesh. It's ironic that Saul was buried under a tamarisk tree. Earlier, he had been taking shade under a tamarisk tree 
when he ordered the slaughter of the priests of Nob because they had helped David as he fled from Saul. Now he's buried under a tamarisk tree himself. As one great commentator put it, wickedness always finds its appropriate retribution. God gave David a great victory as a young man against the Philistines because of his trust and love of the Lord. Saul, however, despite good intentions, did not obey the commands of the Lord explicitly. And therefore, God rejected him as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 5, it says that when Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid and trembled in his heart greatly. Sadly, on that day, Saul not only lost his life, but he lost the lives of three of his sons, including Jonathan. Here at this site on Mount Gilboa, as the Israelites fled from the Philistines, many of them fell and perished right here. And so it will be for us if we do not sow the right seeds in our lives right now. What we sow in this life, we will reap in the life after. On Mount Gilboa, God allowed his once chosen king to fall in humiliation, ending the life of a man that had so much promise. Saul had every opportunity to be one of the great heroes of faith, but in the end his pride, arrogance, and disobedience brought him to ruin on Mount Gilboa. The story of Saul and his death at Mount Gilboa really is prefaced by a number of other sad events in his life. The first one where he made a foolish decision to go ahead and to offer up a sacrifice to God that he was not authorized to make because he was tired of waiting on the prophet Samuel. And then the foolish decision that he made in regard to a vow about his men not eating anything through the course of a very serious long battle against the Philistines. And then a third mistake that he made when he spared King Agag of the Amalekites and some of their animals and offered up sacrifice to God. Very sincere, but yet sincerely wrong because he didn't completely obey the voice of God. And then, perhaps most heinous of all, when he killed those priests of Nob for harboring David during his time of flight from King Saul. All of those things really tell us about a gradual apostasy that took place in the life of King Saul that then culminated in his death on Mount Gilboa. Saul's sin affected himself, his family, and the nation that he was called to rule over. A godly leader will be a blessing to any nation, but an ungodly leader will bring ruin upon any nation. God, through Samuel, said, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, I will reject you from being king. And so Saul was then forevermore on a path toward destruction. And the same is still true for us today. Jesus said, If you reject my word, my word is what will judge you at the last day. We all have a choice to make whether or not we're going to believe and follow God's word or whether we're going to reject it and follow our own path the way Saul did. Saul's defeat meant victory for the enemy and how sad it is that the enemies of God won the battle on that day, but it didn't have to be that way. If only Saul had chosen to live in obedience to the Lord. I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn from the life of King Saul 
is the principle of sowing and reaping. We end up reaping what we have sown. Now Galatians 6, 7, and 8 reveals that if we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. Things like lasciviousness or sexual immorality or even religious division. And when we sow to our life sin, as described there, we're going to end up reaping terrible consequences. God doesn't want it to be that way for us. He wants us to reap the spiritual. He wants us to reap the blessings that can come from sowing to the Spirit when we sow into our life things like joy and happiness and meekness and goodness and love. Daily we make choices about the seeds we will sow. We will plant and we will harvest. If we sow corrupt seeds, choosing to walk in sin and disobedience, we will harvest the sad consequences of that disobedience. God's desire is that we walk in relationship with Him, choosing to obey and serve the Lord. He would have us reap a harvest full of His blessings, as opposed to sorrow and misery. A person cannot experience the blessings that come to the righteous without living the life of a righteous individual. Whenever the Israelites lost their focus on living by God's principles, they always experienced hardships and difficulties. They sowed evil and then they reaped the terrible consequences. I'm very thankful that when they turned back to the Lord, as they did with Gideon, they were blessed by divine protection and care. It's unfortunate that the story was reversed with Saul. You know, he began with the honor of being selected as Israel's first human king, but he did not maintain his humility, he departed from God's instructions, and he reaped horrible consequences. It's always the case that there's a cost for those who depart from faithfulness. Conducting the business of life without walking at the Lord's side is a, it's a losing affair. I'm very thankful, again, for the example of Gideon, who reminds us that anyone who turns to the Lord and practices his teachings will find blessings. So, if a family wants a peace-filled home that is characterized by righteousness today, they can have it by following the Lord's teachings. If a church desires to be successful in serving the kingdom of Christ, the same principle applies. Do as directed in God's word and reap the positive results. Ultimately, every sin has a consequence. And since we don't live completely unto ourselves, there is a ripple effect produced by our sin that cannot be retracted. Every action has a reaction. And this is true with sin as well. David was a man after God's own heart, yet he was still an imperfect man. He struggled with sin like we do. When he committed adultery and even murder, David repented and turned back to God, yet God still enacted consequences that David had to face. David reaped what he sowed. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, For the one who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us sow good seeds throughout our lives, seeds that yield godliness and righteousness. If you think that you can be successful in this life and pleasing to God without knowing and living His Word, think again.
you will be rejected just like Saul, a man with so much promise and potential. Let it never be said of us that we had so much potential but not the right heart. Our Lord makes it very clear to us in Matthew chapter 7 that good intentions and even great and mighty works will not be enough to save us without humble obedience to His Word. We will reap what we sow. It is an eternal truth that has played out again and again throughout time. You are the heavens and I am a star. You are the thunder and I am a whisper. Quietly longing to be where you are. How fascinating that two sets of desperate situations occurred in and around Mount Gilboa. For Gideon and Saul, it was tremendous odds in battle at Gilboa. For Elisha and Jesus, it was the death of a mother's son beside the hill of Moray. In every instance, the lessons pointed to the same principle, and that God alone provides the necessary strength for overwhelming situations, even circumstances as crushing as death. There is no question that our days are filled with enduring stress all over the globe, politically, economically, socially. The sobering events that we view and hear from the media continually infiltrate our minds. So what about our personal struggles and trials? Often it seems like that we're in the eye of a storm. But in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31, it says this, Let us never forget that our God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The Harod Valley, the Hill of Moray, and Mount Geboa seem as beautiful and ageless today as they did in the days of the Bible. Geography doesn't change. The lessons taught in these places offer truths as enduring as the beautiful settings in which they occurred. We are totally dependent upon God. And if we don't look to Him, but rather to ourselves to meet our needs, only disaster can result. Something wonderful happens, on the other hand, when we regard ourselves as helplessly dependent on the Lord. In our hearts and attitudes, we must remain as children before Him. If we are enabled to accomplish anything, it's because of the Lord and His grace. The secret of His blessing on anything we do, large or small, is that all the glory goes to Him. When the Lord uses us for His purpose, He often has to strip away dependence upon our own intelligence, our education, abilities, and strengths. Psalms 146 says this, Do not put your trust in princes and mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful.